Hello everyone. Thank you very much for tuning into this TSRA podcast series. My name is Mushtaba Mubashir. I'm a fourth year surgery resident here at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm joined today by Dr. Manisha Sudarshan. She's a staff thoracic surgeon here at the Cleveland Clinic. We had the pleasure of doing several podcasts before which were quite well received. In the previous podcast we had discussed lung resections such as wedges, segmentectomies, lobectomies, as well as their complications. In this podcast we'll continue forward from the last podcast and discuss pneumonectomies. Although morbidity and mortality for the extensive lung resection has decreased over the last couple of years, the complication rate is still high. It can be as high as about 50% depending on the indication and patient population. We'll discuss case scenarios similar to our previous podcasts and discuss indications, preoperative workup, operative management as well as complications related to pneumonectomies. Thank you very much Dr. Sudarshan for joining us. Glad to be here. And so we'll start off with our first case. So you have a 52-year-old male who has hypertension. He's a 25-pack year ex-smoker who's presenting to your clinic with a 2-month history of weight loss. His general practitioner performed a CT scan there locally and that has revealed a right-sided hilar mass. He's already received a bronchoscopic biopsy at an outside hospital that's consistent with squamous cell carcinoma. The rest of his medical history is not contributory. His physical exam reveals normal vital signs in a man who appears older than stated age, and otherwise the rest of his physical exam is normal. How do you want to approach his workup? So in this scenario, we want to adequately stage this cancer. We want to understand the location of the hilar mass, whether the mass is invading adjacent structures. We also want to know the presence of any hilar or mediastinal or any subcarinal lymph nodes on the CT scans. We also want to assess the presence of any pleural effusions as well as any other masses in other lobes or segments of the lungs. We'll then complete this metastatic workup with PET scans and an MRI brain as well. Also consider mediastinal staging such as within EBUS. Finally, to conclude, we'll complete a cardiopulmonary workup such as a pulmonary function test and an echo. Well, that's right. So you want to adequately stage this cancer before proceeding further. So the CT chest itself can give you a lot of information. So more details on that. This is a five centimeter mass. It's overlying the bronchus intermedius and abutting the right upper lobe bronchus as well. Um, it crosses the major fissure. There does not appear to be uh, invasion of the main PA or other structures, and it is a infused scan. There's no significantly enlarged lymph nodes or other masses that are appreciated. You get a PET scan and that does not demonstrate any distant metastasis or PET-avid lymphadenopathy. You get an MRI brain that does not demonstrate any brain meds. Um, there's no lymphadenopathy on the PET scan or the CT scan as mentioned. Do you still want an EBUS? Yes, in this particular scenario, since uh, this is quite an extensive surgery we're performing. Yes, so exactly. It's a planning a pretty large resection here and uh, invasive mediastinal staging is indicated regardless of the lymph node appearance on CT and PET scan. You definitely don't want to be surprised with N2 or even N3 positive lymph nodes after a pneumonectomy because that has a very poor prognosis. So you complete an EBUS. There's adequate lymphoid samples that are taken from station 7, 4R, 4L, 2L, and 2R and they're all negative for cancer. Um, at the same time, the bronchoscopy reveals an endobronchial component that is present in the bronchus intermedius and the right upper lobe bronchus as well. But there is a good um, zone in the right main stem bronchus that is cancer-free. 
So that's your information that you obtained from the bronchoscopy and EBUS. What other tests did you want? To complete our preoperative workup, uh, I would also like to obtain pulmonary function tests and cardiac testing with a stress echo. And so what's your reasoning behind those tests? Pulmonary function test is to really evaluate the patient's pulmonary reserve. Would he be able to tolerate a pneumonectomy? We'd also be worried about his uh, extensive history of smoking and also possible COPD. The echo is to not just evaluate his cardiac function, but also to evaluate the presence of pulmonary hypertension. That is the contraindication to pneumonectomy. Okay. So you get your PFTs and you calculate the post-operative predictive FEV1 and DLCO, and both are 55%. The echo is within normal limits, no valvular dysfunction, no evidence of pulmonary hypertension. The stress part is normal. Um, he reaches his uh, goal heart rate and there's no evidence of uh, ischemia. Um, so once again, the post-operative predictive FEV1 and DLCO is 55%. Do you want any other tests? We also perform additional tests uh, for functional reserve, such as by performing a stair climb test, which is what I'd probably do next. Yep. So you do a stair climb test. Uh, it's 22 meters. He's able to climb it easily. And so you're right. Any time that you have a post-operative predictive outcomes that are between 30 and 60 percent, um, a low-tech test is recommended to understand the tolerance better. And if it's any lower or you have further doubts on the low-tech test, then you really want to consider CPET or cardiopulmonary exercise testing to really risk stratify this person better. Um, so you have established now with your test, you're happy. He's a good candidate for pneumonectomy um, and that surgery is suitable for tumor. Do you want to give him chemotherapy or radiation before the surgery? I would discuss him at our multidisciplinary tumor board uh, since he does not specifically meet the criteria for upfront uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, he would um, undergo an upfront pneumonectomy, but this is something we definitely discuss at the tumor board. Yep, I agree. I think present uh, presentation at tumor board for these complex cases is always um, a good idea to round up your plan. So you present him, everyone agrees, upfront resection is the plan for this centrally located T3N0 M0 tumor that involves both the right upper lobe bronchus and the bronchus intermedius. Um, so can you take me through your operating room plan? So start with the anesthetic plan, telling me about the medications you want the anesthesiologist to give, type of ET tube, your approach to pain control, your post-operative plan. Since this is a right-sided tumor, I would want to start with a left-sided double lumen endotracheal tube we would establish adequate access, including central line access, arterial line for monitoring. Uh, we'd place a Foley catheter as well. Uh, Periop antibiotics uh, before incision. We'd also give uh, prophylactic heparin prior to induction. The actual technique and approach for this surgery would be uh, a right-sided thoracotomy. If we consider pain control after surgery, since this is a pretty painful incision, we'd consider uh, placing an epidural after discussion with anesthesia. During the case, would make sure that fluids are judiciously administered and then we'll try to extubate the patient in the OR. Okay, that's good. And so what would be, can you just take me through the main steps for your right-sided pneumonectomy that you're planning? Yes, I would perform a right-sided posterior lateral thoracotomy. While performing this incision, uh, I would consider taking an intercostal muscle flap 
Once we're in the chest, we'd assess for any signs of metastatic disease, including involvement of the pleura or any of the other structures that make it undersectable, such as major vascular structures. Uh, we'd start by taking down the inferior pulmonary ligament, we'd mobilize the posterior and the anterior hilum and open the pleura as well, followed by encircling the superior and the inferior pulmonary vein. Once we identify the main pulmonary artery, we'd retract the superior vein inferiorly and then dissect away in a subadventitial plane. The superior margin of the right mainstem bronchus uh, would next be freed, where we'd allow the main PA to be safely encircled, uh, usually with a thumb and a forefinger. Once this is done, since we're going to be dividing the PA, we'd test clamp first and then occlude the main PA, assess for any signs of respiratory or any cardiac instability over the next couple of minutes. If all is well, we divide the PA with a vascular load stapler. We then divide the inferior and the superior pulmonary veins also with the vascular stapler. And finally, our last structure left is the main stem bronchus, which we dissect all the way down to the carina, ensuring that we don't devascularize the stump. Finally, before stapling the bronchus, we'd ask anesthesia to pull back the endotracheal tube and then leave as short of a stump as possible. As discussed in a previous podcast, we'd also do a leak test. Uh, we'd test the stump underwater while holding a valsalva maneuver. And then um, considering the intercostal muscle flap that it created, uh, we'd use that for reinforcement. Yeah, so I agree with a lot of the points that uh, you said. Some, some of them I just want to highlight, highlight. Getting around the right main PA is um, definitely easier than the left main PA. It is longer. I do like to get around it, as you mentioned, um, by using blunt dissection between the thumb and forefingers, safest, and then then you can get a sem- forceps and get around it and put in vessel loops. Test clamping the PA is important. You don't want to you don't want to go in and just staple it and then find out the, that you have hypotension or O2 SATs problem. You're not committed to the pneumonectomy at that point, so you're still okay to bail out in case you have severe hemodynamic changes. I think getting a short stump is very key here, especially on the right side. And so you want to make sure you're all the way up to the carina. If you have a good landing zone for your stapler, as we mentioned before, then you can go ahead and take it. Uh, Sometimes you want to make sure that when you clamp, you're also doing a bronchoscopy to ensure you have negative margins. Um, So that's another thing to consider. Um, some people, if it's there's not a lot of margin, may need to, rather than use a stapler, because you lose quite a bit of margins in terms of the bronchial stump, may need to cut and sew uh, for a shorter stump and negative margins. So you mentioned a lot about you know, buttressing the stump. And I agree with that. The right-sided bronchial stump is exposed, unlike the left-sided bronchial stump, which sort of automatically retracts under the aortic arch and when stapled is covered with vascularized tissue. Um, so you're right in, in reinforcing the right-sided stump. Let's say you did not harvest an intercostal flap on your way in or the flap died. What are some other options for stump reinforcement? Yeah, so, so there's uh, several other options we can use we can use a, a prudal flap, which is called a gorilla flap. We could also use a pericardium to buttress a uh, repair. Um, and if that's not available, we could also use a pericardial fat or any sort of mediastinal fat pad as well. Yep, you can use thymus as well. So I think those are all good options. Bigger muscle flaps like lat dorsi or serratus are also more um, robust options. 
So let's say you had to go intrapericardial. You mentioned pericardial, uh, pericardial fap. But let's say also you had to go intrapericardial for dissection of the pulmonary veins or needed to resect part of the pericardium. How do you handle this? Do you need to close it even? Yeah, pneumonectomy has a high risk of cardiac herniation, especially when there's pericardial defects. So I would definitely close this defect, uh, usually with a bovine pericardial patch. Okay, good. Um, very good. So you have completed the pneumonectomy. Now, how do you manage your chest tubes? Do you put any? If so, what kind of setting do you keep them on? So I would ensure that there's excellent hemostosis, given that the post-pneumonectomy cavity is, is quite large. The actual pneumonectomy space has different ways um, uh, that it can be managed in, and this is usually institution-specific and also surgeon-dependent. One of the techniques is simply not inserting any chest tubes and suctioning out air as needed in order to balance the mediastinum. Another technique is we could place a chest tube and connect it to uh, drainage in order to keep the mediastinum balanced. The last option is to use the chest tube, connect it to an atrium, but uh, make sure that there's no suction that can be applied. One common way is to simply tape over the suction port of the atrium so that it's not accidentally um, applied uh, suction to. Yep. So I agree that there are very there's different approaches um, and there's no one right approach as long as you do the same approach every time and you have a way of balancing the mediastinum in case the mediastinum shifts. Um, so that is the key. Also, if, the, if there's a chest tube left in, it's important to get it out early because there's always a risk of infection with it. Um, so in general, fluid accumulates in the pneumonectomy space at a rate of one to two intercostal spaces per day in the immediate postoperative period. So in about three days, you can expect, in general, about 70% of the hemithorax to be filled. And then after that, because the pleural pressure becomes higher, then it slows down. So in about two weeks, you are assuming about 90% of the hemithorax is filled. So this is the kind of general rule. So let's go over some scenarios that highlight complications of pneumonectomy and how to manage them. So you have a 60-year-old female who's now post-operative day three from an uncomplicated right pneumonectomy who becomes progressively tachycardic, tachypneic, and hypoxemic. She's initially recovering on the floor, but then upon this decompensation is intubated and sent to the ICU. The chest x-ray demonstrates new patchy infiltrates in the left lung. What is your differential diagnosis? There's a, quite a wide differential diagnosis here. We could classify them into either cardiac causes or respiratory pulmonary causes. Uh, some of the respiratory causes include pneumonias, PEs, they could be mucus plugging, they could be signs of aspiration. And more specifically to pneumonectomy, we could have post-pneumonectomy pulmonary edema. Of course, uh, for cardiac causes, any cardiac dysfunction would also lead to such symptoms. Yeah. So she only has a left lung in, so any any pneumonia, PE, as you mentioned, mucus plugging can really take a big hit on respiratory function. The aspiration is a big part. Um, so you always want to keep all this in mind and quickly work all of them up at the same time. So you mentioned post-pneumonectomy pulmonary edema. Let's talk about that a bit more. Can you elaborate on what that is? What causes it, you think, and how is it treated? And finally, what's the prognosis? Yeah, this is a condition that's quite specific to pneumonectomies. It's usually more on the right side as compared to the left side. And it's something that's quite multifactorial. It's um, similar to ARDS. Some of the causes include overhydration. There could have been barotrauma or overexpansion of the lung. 
even transfusion can cause uh, post pulmonary edema. Uh, treatment is similar to how ARDS is treated in terms of ventilator support. It's quite a morbid condition though, however, uh, unfortunately with um, more than 50% mortality. Yes, so th this is a terrible complication. Luckily, it doesn't happen often, about 1% to 5% of pneumonectomies. But as you mentioned, more often than the right versus left, I mean, the right pneumonectomy is, all, uh, is always higher risk, and sometimes people call it a right pneumonectomy is a disease by itself. So very serious complication. It's really unclear. Some smaller studies show that if you give a dose of solumedrol just before stapling the PA, it might decrease this complication. Certainly judicious fluid administration, you mentioned this, you know, on the preoperative discussion with anesthesia is very important throughout the case and postoperatively. So this might contribute to decreasing it. And it's really treated like ARDS in terms of vent management and um, best supportive care could even include ECMO if the patient is eligible. So what is the difference between post-pneumonectomy edema and post-pneumonectomy syndrome? Yeah, so these are two very different things which have uh, quite similar sounding names. Post-pneumonectomy syndrome is a condition where there's a very severe shift of mediastinal structures such that actually starts to cause some symptoms due to the anatomic distortion. So it's generally left mainstem bronchus that can become kinked due to a rotation that happens after right-sided pneumonectomy. Yep. So exactly. It can happen to either bronchus. It's something that happens several years out, so um, very different than post-pneumonectomy edema. And the treatment is release of the torsion surgically and then placing prosthesis such as breast implants in the pneumonectomy space to ensure the torsion, a future torsion is avoided. It's definitely not an easy surgery. Once again, it's not a very common complication seen, but when you do see it, it's quite remarkable on the CT scans. So let's progress to another scenario. You see a 70-year-old male who has a pneumonectomy at an outside hospital four weeks ago, and he presents to your institution's emergency department, now complaining of fever, chills, shortness of breath, and a new cough. A chest x-ray shows a right pneumonectomy space that is 30% filled. And just to remind you, he had a pneumonectomy four weeks ago at an outside hospital. So what are you suspecting? I'd be quite concerned for development of a bronchopleurophistula, given that the chest x-ray is showing filling off um, the right pneumonectomy space. Yeah, so it's only 30% filled, despite being four weeks out. That's very suspicious. And of course, he's having uh, symptoms of fever, chills, and new cough. So what is your approach to this? The first thing I do is I place the pneumonectomy side of the patient down as soon as possible in order to prevent contamination of the other side of the lung. We definitely start IV antibiotics and uh, consider inserting a chest tube in order to drain this, uh, this collection, this empyema. We then proceed with the bronchoscopy to evaluate the stump. Yeah, so I think, as you mentioned, protection of the remaining lung is key here to ensure he doesn't progress to full-on respiratory failure. So you do that and you do a bronchoscopy and it reveals quite a long stump with pooling of secretions that you can appreciate at the end of the stump. And there's a small BPF that you identify there you can see bubbling at the end of the stump. So what do you want to do? So this sounds like it's an early fistula that's forming and the etiology seems to be because of the length of the stump. It's a long stump here and that's probably why this BP fistula is developing. So I start by dealing with any any sepsis that the patient has. Uh, we'd make sure that the, the other lung is improving and the patient is doing fine from a cardiopulmonary status so that we could proceed with surgery. 
and we'd plan for a repeat thoracotomy on that side in order to revise the stump. Since it's a quite, it's a long stump, we'd shorten it and then we'd buttress it with a muscle flap. As you had mentioned earlier, the latissimus dorsi or serratus can also be used. If the pneumonectomy space is clean, we could close it after decortication of the lung and irrigation. Yeah, so I don't think there's a one, you know, one strategy for BPFs. Really, these come in a spectrum. So actual treatment can vary depending on what you find. Um, this is a rather straightforward scenario. You have a clear reason why this patient's stump blew out. It is rather long, as you mentioned, uh, which is not what you want to see on a right pneumonectomy. And this is kind of early. It is a small leak and the patient is doing well. Otherwise, he has good cardiopulmonary status and uh, there's not a significant amount of infection of the post-pneumonectomy space. So I agree that revision of the stump and cleaning the space out and considering closure is a reasonable approach to this. Now, how would your strategy change if this was a very delayed BPF with significant space contamination? In that scenario, we'd have to consider waiting for the fistula to heal and the actual post-pneumonectomy space to clean up. So uh, we'd consider creating a window thoracotomy and packing this space to allow for this healing. And um, finally, once things have improved, we could consider a Claggett procedure where we close this flap after uh, using antibiotics in this space. Yeah, so a window thoracotomy is often also called an ileosal flap, which is reasonable when you have so much amount of contamination and the patient is sick and you first need to deal with their sepsis and let the fistula heal before you can consider trying to fix it or um, closing the space. So handling a BPF after pneumonectomy is a very challenging problem. Prevention is the best uh, way of treatment. Timing of the BPF, extent of the empyema of the post-pneumonectomy space, size of the BPF, nutritional status of the patient, cardiopulmonary status of the patient, they all are key components in forming a robust treatment plan. And so let's let's move on to our last scenario. You have a 45-year-old man who underwent a right intrapericardial pneumonectomy. He is post-operative day one, and he had a large vomiting episode in the ICU they call you because he has subsequently become profoundly hypotensive, cyanotic with chest pains and distended neck veins. Uh, what is your differential? Aspiration is definitely a concern in this scenario given the vomiting. But since he has distended neck veins, we'd also be concerned for SVC syndrome and uh, cardiac herniation as well. Yep, so you're right. And this sort of links back to our previous discussion that if there's any significant pericardial defect, it needs to be closed. Um, so we're not sure, you, you didn't do this right intrapericardial pneumonectomy, so was it closed or did the patch blow out? We're not sure, but having distended neck veins and having a clear inciting episode is very suspicious for a cardiac herniation. So what do you want to do if you suspect this? Do you want to start CPR? We'd resuscitate the patient first, see if changing the patient's position has any effect or any improvement. But most importantly, we need to get to the OR for redo thoracotomy in order to reposition the heart. 
that would most likely um, resolve this scenario. Yeah, so this is something you need to act on very fast. There's no time to, you know, work this up. So you want to try resuscitate with fluids, immediately repositioning, trying to get the herniation to reduce back. But at the same time, you could put an echo. You can easily identify cardiac uh, herniation. But as you mentioned, uh, no time to waste a redo thoracotomy and repositioning the heart is very important because maneuvers such as CPR will fail. And this has uh, basically would be uniformly fatal if the heart is not uh, reduced back to its normal position. And then closure with a patch is important. And so as I mentioned, a patch may have not been used in this scenario. If it's used, it may have failed postoperatively. All right. Thanks very much, everyone, for tuning into our podcast. This is the end of our podcast, and we hope this was a good overview of complications after pneumonectomy. As you've heard, pneumonectomy has its own unique complications compared to lung resections, and definitely something that we're seeing more and more. Thank you very much, Dr. Sadarshan. Great.